This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to the Diabetes Knowledge into Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. Today we're discussing glycemic variability in type 2 diabetes and what we know so far about possible effects on outcomes. After reviewing the available literature, we'll discuss putting this into clinical practice with Dr. Earl Hirsch. HbA1c is traditionally the primary clinical metric for assessing and managing glycemia, based on a wealth of evidence that reducing HbA1c results in a lower risk of complications. However, HbA1c is a measure of average glycemia over approximately three months, so it doesn't tell us about shorter-term glycemic control or the range of glycemia that makes up this average. In short, it doesn't give us much information about a person's day-to-day glycemic control. One patient with very stable glucose levels could have the same HbA1c as one with highly fluctuating levels and hyperglycemic episodes. Therefore, someone with an HbA1c at target could in fact be said to have poorly controlled glycemia. A reported history of severe hyperglycemia in type 2 diabetes has been associated with poor outcomes such as twofold odds of macrovascular events and fourfold odds of myocardial infarction in the Edinburgh Type 2 Diabetes Study as reported by Badenis and colleagues in 2014. It's also associated with an increased risk of death. Participants in the ACCORD study, who had an episode of hyperglycemia requiring third-party assistance, had a 40% higher mortality rate, while this is reported to be more than twofold for recent severe hyperglycemia in a study of US Armed Forces veterans. When we look at day-to-day glycemia, high variability has itself been associated with adverse outcomes. A secondary analysis of the DEVOTE trial found that higher variability in day-to-day fasting glucose was significantly associated with higher risks of severe hyperglycemia and all-cause mortality. There is also evidence that associates long-term variation of both fasting glucose and HbA1c with adverse outcomes. One study published in 2018 by Cardoso et al. looked at 24-month glycemic variability in people with type 2 diabetes at high cardiovascular risk. The variability of estimated HbA1c or fasting glucose were associated with poor outcomes and in fact were better risk predictors than the mean HbA1c for all macrovascular and most microvascular outcomes. A 2015 meta-analysis by Gorst and colleagues also found that high variability of HbA1c is associated with adverse outcomes independently of HbA1c level. The majority of these studies also found HbA1c variability to be a better predictor of outcomes than mean HbA1c. So what does this mean in practice? The evidence currently available suggests that glycemic variability endpoints could be better predictors of outcomes than HbA1c alone. So should this be included in routine clinical assessment? Here to discuss this is Dr. Earl Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch is Professor of Medicine and Diabetes Treatment and Teaching Chair at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle, and he's been involved in many major clinical trials and work around glycemic control. His disclosures are available in the episode notes. So firstly, in your opinion, does HbA1c on its own suffice to assess glycemic control in type 2 diabetes? As a general rule of thumb, 
Um, we've evolved our answer on that question over the years. When we started using hemoglobin A1C in the early 1980s clinically, and recall it was first discovered in the late 1960s, we thought this was the most important clinical finding and it became our major clinical tool to look at glucose control. And um, the DCCT, the UK PDS, and then all of the major randomized control trials in addition to our clinical guidelines were all based on this test. But that has changed over the last 10 years or so when we could really take a look at hemoglobin A1C as it compared to continuous glucose monitoring. We knew that hemoglobin A1C was just an average. Um, we knew that some people had more highs than lows. Somebody, for example, with type one diabetes who makes no insulin is gonna have many more highs and lows, which we call glucose variability, than somebody with the same hemoglobin A1C with type two diabetes who may be on metformin alone. Um, they may have the same average, but not the same highs or lows. And what the continuous glucose monitoring has done is that it has allowed us to quantify this and to really understand the limitations of hemoglobin A1C much better. As there's currently no standardized definition, how do you think we can best define and measure glycemic variability in type 2 diabetes? We are still working on that. And like our understanding of hemoglobin A1C, I would say it is a work in progress. Let me give you a little history here. When we first started looking at finger stick glucose testing, the downloads showed us the standard deviation, which is a measurement of glucose variability. And many of us started using the standard deviation as a way to quantify it um, just with finger stick glucose testing. And I came under the impression that if I could get that standard deviation and multiply that number by three, whatever it was, and that number was less than the average on the finger stick glucose testing, I, was ha I would have a reasonable amount of glucose variability, minimizing the lows and minimizing the highs. And I further came to understand that was especially true if the average of the glucose monitoring was between 120 and 180. That little formula didn't work at all if the average was less than 120. And then we got to glucose, continuous glucose monitoring, and I realized that it was quite easy for the software to measure coefficient of variation. And what I later came to realize is that a coefficient of variation of 33% is the exact same number as the standard deviation times three being less than the average. And there was not a consensus, however, when we had our consensus guidelines about what the target coefficient of variation should be. An investigator in France thought, thought that number should be less than 36. I thought it should be less than 33. Um, this was just three years ago or so. And there has been more work on this, but we went back and looked at data from our patients with type one diabetes. We just presented this as an oral abstract at the EASD meeting. And what we showed was that the coefficient of variation 
and how much hypoglycemia one sees, because that's really the main focus of um, why we are so interested in glucose variability, at least from a clinical point of view at the doctor's office. What we saw was that the coefficient of variation is really dependent on what that person's hemoglobin A1C is or the estimated hemoglobin A1C, which we call the GMI. And so I was really thinking that what we really need is a coefficient of variation under three, under 33, and we needed more consensus on that. But my own research has shown that's not the case. And it's much more complicated than that. I think we need a better metric than coefficient of variation. And I think until that metric comes out, what we really need to do as clinicians is looking at the CGM tracing, assuming you have a CGM tracing, and looking at the time below range and the time above range. Um, coefficient of variation is a reasonable metric for glucose variability, but unfortunately, it's not as good of a metric as I thought it would be. Um, if you would have asked me the same question a year ago, I would have given you a very different answer, but this is what our own research has shown. And that's why to me, this whole area is so exciting because we have to keep changing our minds as we look at this more deeply. Evidence shows that high glycemic variability is associated with poor outcomes, but what evidence is there to suggest that reducing glycemic variability would improve outcomes? The data on glucose variability and complications is retrospective, somewhat anecdotal, but from a biological point of view, in my opinion, makes a lot of sense as what we see at the cellular level with glucose spikes. And for that matter, the inflammatory activation we see with the glucose spikes, we see the same inflammatory activation with hypoglycemia. The problem is, we don't have a randomized controlled trial that really looks at this as a primary outcome. And therefore, as much as many people believe this is truly a, an indicator of risk for vascular complications in the, in the future, and I have been promoting this for years, I also have to say, we don't have the right data to confirm and conclude this is the case. And in fact, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I'm not even sure how we would do the study today. Um, five years ago, I was thinking, well, if we put people with type two or even better type one diabetes on an automated insulin delivery to keep their blood sugars very flat and stable over time, and another group of people we would give standard therapy. And with that standard therapy, with just insulin, we would um, uh, keep the A1Cs hopefully the same, but have more variability. So I was thinking about doing this in type one diabetes, automated insulin delivery or artificial pancreas in one group, just regular pump delivery in another. That maybe over time could have done it. It would have been very expensive and difficult to do, but we can't even do that now. And we can't do that now because automated insulin delivery 
has quickly become standard of care, at least in the United States. And I think in most parts around Europe too, for type one diabetes. So even though this certainly makes sense and there's data to support it, um, long-term data, we actually have patient on the, um, in the ICUs that would support variability is bad. The fundamental problem is we don't have the right clinical trial, which prospectively looks at this as a primary outcome. And so as much as I would like to think it is true, if I put on my researcher hat, I have to acknowledge right now, we can't really confirm that. So should we be using continuous glucose monitors or doing other things like selecting particular lifestyle interventions or pharmacotherapies with a view to reducing glycemic variability? The, the short answer is yes, but um, as far as the variability is concerned, I think this is especially valid for individuals who take insulin. Um, they are at a higher risk of hypoglycemia. We know the hypoglycemia is much more dangerous, especially in the elderly patients, especially patients with known heart disease. I think the variability is an important part of a clinician's thinking about what they want to do. And certainly CGM um, can help with that. But having said that, I have to say, given the strong data we have with the SGLT2 inhibitors with heart failure and renal disease and the GLP-1 receptor agonists known with their very beneficial impact of cardiovascular disease, including stroke. I have to say that given the strength of the evidence of using these drugs um, in type 2 diabetes, I have to say that for that subpopulation of type 2 diabetes, that has to take precedent. And I know we dramatically underuse these drugs, at least in the United States, for those patients who could best benefit from it. But having said that, we are seeing way too many emergency room visits and hospital visits for hypoglycemia in the United States, especially the elderly. And this is insulin-treated patients in addition to those treated with sulfonylureas. Um, I am hopeful that the data improve over time um, as we utilize more insulin-sparing agents. I don't like using that word, but the GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors um, allow that in certain patients. And it's, it's a complicated question because with all of that being said, we still underutilize insulin, at least in the United States. We have too many people who would benefit from insulin with hemoglobin A1C levels above 9%, average glucose levels above 180 or 200 milligrams per deciliter, that's 10 or 11 millimolar. And um, we underutilize insulin. And so um, in those patients who are more insulin deficient with type two diabetes, they have more glucose variability, they're at a higher risk of hypoglycemia. I don't think we look at glucose variability as a primary endpoint but we certainly can minimize hypoglycemia when we use insulin in those patients with continuous glucose monitoring. I think I'm starting to sound like a politician and I don't mean to, but um, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to be very um, both realistic and acknowledge where the literature is, where it is right now. 
So finally, what would be your take home message for our audience to put into their clinical practice? I think the only way to really look at glucose variability in a quantitative way is with continuous glucose monitoring. And what clinicians can do is they don't necessarily have to have somebody always on a continuous glucose monitor. They can use a professional uh, CGM where the patients may be blinded, may not be blinded, but using that even um, once or twice a year to look at the variability. Um, One other very important point about this, about the CGM, is that we published an article earlier this year in Diabetes Technology and Therapeutics showing that looking at the CGM data, it does not always correlate exactly with the hemoglobin A1C data. We know that. And um, you may be seeing a patient with type 2 diabetes who looks, looks to be doing relatively well with their hemoglobin A1C, and you think they're great, and you put them on a CGM, and you see they are not. 22% of our patients, we showed um, their estimated hemoglobin A1C or GMI was one full hemoglobin A1C percentage point away from their measured hemoglobin A1C. That's 22%. And so looking at the CGM, even one time in somebody with type 2 diabetes will help the clinician know if they should add a drug if the A1C is going up, uh, maybe take a drug away, but it will let the clinician know if that hemoglobin A1C is really giving them an average glucose or not. Um, The A1C, again, does not give anything for glucose variability. And the only way to look at that, and my biggest concern with glucose variability in the short term is hypoglycemia. And I I really do think that um, when we look at the CGM tracings on people on insulin or even people on sulfonylureas, I am always surprised how much hypoglycemia goes unnoted. And to me, that's the most important and practical reason for looking at the CGM, either all the time or even occasionally. This brings us to the end of the episode. To conclude, while estimated HbA1c provides a useful clinical metric, it may not reflect glycemic control as accurately as we once thought. There's ongoing debate around the best way to measure glycemic variability And while there's limited evidence that reducing glycemic variability will improve patient outcomes, we do know that high glycemic variability is associated with poorer outcomes. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts or recommend us to your colleagues. We also have a brand new Diabetes Knowledge into Practice website where you can find all the previous episodes of the podcast as well as other free educational resources in diabetes including short animated videos explaining recent publications and Congress highlights. You can find a link to this in the episode notes, as well as all the references discussed today.